these are in me. These are so intensively in me. I police myself. And as I came to understand, I police other women because culture, culture is contagious. It has long tails. It is long teeth and it is in us. And we pass it on to each other like a virus. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, best-selling author Elise Lunen on the price women pay to be good, how the seven deadly sins might be keeping you from making friends, and why we don't allow men to be sad. Settle in, everybody. All of that and a whole lot more coming up right after this first break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends, this week it is all about the seven deadly sins. Sort of. 
It's sort of about the seven deadly sins, but really, it's about the things we long for. Things like love and connection and success and rest, among other things. Elise Lunen's best-selling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, she explores the ideas we've all inherited about how we are supposed to behave regardless of gender and what we're supposed to want, or more precisely, what we're not supposed to want. Now, before you think that this episode is just going to be really heady, theoretical conversations, it's actually quite personal. Elise and I talk about envy and competition and who is allowed to be at the top of the success ladder. We also get to talk about why women are often seen as fundamentally catty, which is a really cool conversation. We talk about our fears of being judged as too needy, too loud, too full of ourselves, and how all of that stuff keeps us from making friends. I told you, it gets really personal. We also get into the lost sin of sadness, which is a fascinating concept that I didn't know about. Somebody who kind of, I kind of pride myself on knowing all things sadness. No idea about the relationship between sadness and the seven deadly sins. So we get into that lost sin of sadness and what that means for men and boys. Now, whether the seven deadly sins have been part of your religious tradition or not, they're part of our inherited, internalized cultural traditions. So they affect everybody. You'll leave this conversation with a new perspective and hopefully a lot of questions about your own true desires and what stands in the way of the life that you long for. In addition to her New York Times bestseller, On Our Best Behavior, Elise Lunen has written for Oprah Magazine, El Decor, other media outlets, and she's the host of the super cool podcast, Pulling the Thread. So if you're interested in these sort of conversations about complex interrelated issues, check out Pulling the Thread because whew, she is our people. Elise is smart and insightful and thoughtful and kind, and I think you're going to love her and this conversation. So let's get to it. My conversation with Elise Lunen and the price we pay to be good. Elise, I am so thrilled to have you here. It will surprise no one that we have been chatting forever before we officially get rolling. That was supposed to be a secret. <laughs> Shh, don't <laughs> tell anyone that Megan really loves to talk to all of her friend guests. Anyway, I was telling you before we got rolling <laughs> that I have a really I had a really hard time narrowing down the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Because the the intersection of the things that fascinate you and the things that fascinate me is largely a circle. So there are a million places we could begin. But because your book is the sort of the anchor for so many of those things, I want to start there and then we'll move on beyond that. So to get everybody on the same page, could you introduce us to the seven deadly sins and the human needs and desires that are sort of the, the opposite sides of those? Yeah. So because I had to be reminded of what the seven deadly sins were when I, as I was coming into this idea or trying to understand this code of goodness and how it's come to circumscribe the lives of women. And ultimately I came to the seven deadly sins, which reads like a punch card of all of the human instincts, appetites, and desires that we have been programmed to deny. So they are sloth, pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, and anger. And then, and we can get into the history or not, but originally before these were the cardinal vices, they were never in the Bible. They were called eight demonic thoughts. And the eighth was sadness. 
and it fell off the list. I write about it in the book, as you know, but those are these deadly vices, things to be, to be avoided. And this isn't a book that's like a stunty, let's just go and spend a year being lustful and, and greedy and gluttonous. This is about reconciliation and balance. And in our quest for this externally adjudicated idea of goodness, what it is to be a good woman, a woman who needs no rest, has no appetite, has no wants, has no desires, is never upset that in this quest to sort of achieve this golden ring of goodness in our patriarchal society, we spend all of our energy denying all of these instincts that make us human and, you know, denying the very facts of, of, of what it is to be alive. Yeah. I love that you're like, this isn't just a book about go indulge your lust for the next year. Like it's, it's not that mm -hmm. it's more of a, let's look under the hood of these things. And yeah. why are there rules for how to behave? And why are mm -hmm. there rules around not being hungry? And why are there rules around not wanting things in your life? Yeah. And exactly that, these rules. And this is the thing that what, what I really wanted to express in this book is that this is about cultural programming. This is about internalized patriarchy and internalized misogyny. And much like internalized racism, you don't necessarily subscribe. You're not consciously choosing. You're not saying like, I abide, I abide. Like, but this right, is- You didn't check off the terms and the terms and conditions. Yeah, yeah, no terms and conditions. Exactly. You know, I was raised in a largely secular, very progressive alternative family. I have a feminist husband, et cetera, et cetera. These are in me. These are so intensively in me. I police myself. And as I came to understand, I police other women because culture, culture is contagious. It has long tails. It is long teeth and it is in us. And we pass it on to each other like a virus. Yeah. Not even thinking about it. And I think like, nope. we'll use an example here. I love that you brought up, like, I police it in myself and I police it in other people. There's something you said about like, it's like a internal cattle prod, like reminding yes. me of my place. Right. Yes. And I think a really good example of how this shows up, because I think that people can hear this and be like, I don't get what you're talking about. Right. Like <laughs> when you see you're scrolling through your Instagram feed and when you see some woman being proud of themselves or being really confident and being out there and really expressing themselves, like there is a part of you that like is like, who the hell does she think she is? Like or how yes. like what is she doing she wearing is. that? Like, whoo right? That's what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. It is the projection of like all of that badness that we are, our quote unquote badness that we are suppressing. And yeah, I talk about the cattle prop and here's an easy example in the chapter on sloth, which I don't, I think every single woman can relate to. I, I really don't know any women who are lazy or leading particularly restful lives. I write about, you know, how my husband pointed out to me that in the 12 years that we've been married, I've never been able to sit and watch a TV show with him for more than 20 minutes before I am up. I'm going to get my computer. I am starting some laundry. I'm going to go do some dishes, anything. I'm going to do anything because I feel so uncomfortable not being productive. 
And what the, the aha for me is, you know, we can look at all the social science about the disparities between men and women in the workforce in terms of who's putting in more sort of caring hours or who's putting in more hours in general, certainly at home, right? All of the science, the only time that men, fathers in same-sex marriages outstrip mothers is when the mother is the sole breadwinner. And even then I think she might do more housework. I can't remember. It's stunning and sad, but this is what I, writing this book made me understand I had so much rage against my husband because of course these disparities exist in our relationship as well. We're not special. And then I had to realize as I was writing the book, like he's not actually demanding, asking, or even wanting me to make dinner five nights a week and like polish our floors. This is me. These are my own internal standards about what it is to be a good woman, a good mother, and a good partner. Mm-hmm. And they're insidious. Yeah, they really are. And I love the questioning of like, wait a second, why am I doing this? Is this an external demand? Is this an unspoken expectation? Because sometimes that's in there as well. Yeah. But also like just that taking that step outside of things and going, why am I doing this? What makes me feel like I have to do this? Right. Just that yeah. just that space of being curious about where it comes from. I think this is the special magic of your book is that it gets people to make that space to be curious. Right. Yeah. Do these things live in me? And if they do, where do I see them showing up? Yeah. And most likely they do, mm. because, you know, as a progressive woman who's interested like you in social justice and a more equitable world What I also found is that I would be having conversations, sometimes great conversations sort of on my podcast or in previous jobs about the world. And we would be talking about the patriarchy and talking about it as an it and a they and a la, 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 la. And then I was like, you know what? Like, what is it? Is it Oz? Who is behind the curtain? Is it Mitch McConnell? You know, and I could sort of in my own life identify patriarchal men, certainly. I could definitely identify patriarchal women. Mm -hmm. And yet in my own experience, despite like, and and then obviously there are sort of the big cultural misogynistic men, et cetera, and women, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't find it in my own life. Again, to that point that I made about my husband, I would look at the male bosses I've had. I would, I just couldn't find, I couldn't source it in a way that explained to me the chasm for women between where we are and where we should be. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at all the social science research, it's quite clear that women are as hard on other women, if not harder significantly than men, because we'll say things like, well, I just, I expect more from women. Mm -hmm. Again, relying on this cultural idea of quote unquote goodness and these ideas of what it is to achieve that, which is typically out of anyone's reach, doesn't allow for anyone's humanity, anyone's learning. We certainly see this in the way that we cancel each other, destroy each other, criticize each other with very little generosity, typically. Yeah. Oh, that lack of generosity, right? I know a lot of the interviews that you've been doing are focused on the Envy chapter, so we're not going to spend a lot of time in that, but I think we want to bring that in here for a second 
right? it's important because it's, it's so, so important for women, unfortunately. Right? Yes. Like the the whole like you're too big, you're too loud, you're paid too well, all of this stuff, and we want to cut that down. Yeah. Which yes, is it's the beginning, uh, it's the gateway sin, and I. It's funny because it's the gateway sin is that what you just said? Yeah, <laughs> I said it's the gateway sin. It's really where I started the book, yeah. and was wondering if this wasn't sort of all of it before all, all of this idea of all of the reasons that women are so hard on other women, and then I sort of looked at it contextually and was like, where did it come from? What is it? Oh, it's a sin, and then I was like, oh my god, this is the house, like. Envy might be one of the, might be the closet in the master bedroom, but then they all live in this, this house, this structure for women Mm -hmm. that's quite oppressive, but envy, it started with this conversation with Lori Gottlieb, who you are probably friends with Mm -hmm. as well. And a psychotherapist who wrote, maybe you should talk to someone. And she said, she tells her clients to pay attention to their envy because it tells them what they want. And I just like, for whatever reason, it was a small moment, but I just couldn't get out of my head and thought about it for six months, nine months before I started even working on the proposal for the book, running through it, running through it in my daily interactions, because I realized that I envy felt so gross to me so bad that I refused to acknowledge it. And so I had to wonder where I was projecting it. And then this, what I could infer is that I was projecting it on the people who were inspiring my envy and I was deprecating them to make myself feel better. So it was that I don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is? I didn't think her book was that good. I don't know why people are so into it. Whatever form we can all recognize. And this, again, the book is about sort of culture versus nature. This is one of those things about women that culturally we've been told you, that's just who you are. You're all catty bitches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're all bitches. You're all stabbing each other in the back. We can talk about anger and how we're conditioned for covert aggression and whispering and backstabbing and alliance building because we're not allowed to be overtly angry or aggressive. But I resist that. But that's the sort of conversation, oh, that's just how women are that keeps us stuck in these cycles. And when I actually looked at it, I was like, oh, right. These women who are tormentors, quote unquote, mentors are pushing on a dream that I have for myself. They are shining a light. They are full of information. They are doing something that I want to do, or they have something that I want to have. And this is my soul knocking and saying, do the thing. What are you doing? Do the thing. So it's amazing information, that transition from, ew, gross, I'm going to diminish you because your light makes me feel bad versus, oh, wow, like, I want to understand what you're doing. How are you doing this? How can I do this too? Yeah. There's something in our longings in that, right? There's something so deep in our longings, like the things that you get into those like white hot rages of how dare she but her book isn't that good and like i started this and like all of this this stuff that comes out of really a feeling of there is something here that i want that i don't feel like i'm being given or that you know this isn't fair or here's there here is something i'm longing for and can i recode (laughs) my understanding of that spark of envy that spark of 
she's not mm-hmm. all that. Can I recode that for myself to, I like that you say my, my soul is knocking here. It's like the, the doorbell of your desires is getting yes, rung right calling. now. it's yeah. calling. It's literally calling. Yeah. And it can sound like an annoying ring, but when you are like, oh, that is my calling saying, step into this. Like, stop it, mm. step forward, do it. Yeah. Well, and even just articulate your longings, right? Because yes. one of the things you talk about in the book is like, it's not always obvious, but like we are in so many ways conditioned out of our longings, conditioned out oh, of yeah. desire for anything. For sure. Yes. I mean, do you know what you want? Today? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I mean, I that might not be the most fair question for me as a relentless self-investigator and a therapist who's used to asking those questions because I may not know what I want, but I know that I want, Mm. right? So that may not be the, I may not be the fairest person for that question, but I think recognizing that there are things that I long for, that I see other people appear to have, I don't know what's true under the hood, but they appear to have it. And all of my reactions to the reflection of somebody who has something I long for, like they're all valid and they're all information. And Mm -hmm. sometimes somebody's success or whatever in whatever realm pisses me off so much that it identifies a longing for me that I didn't know I had. Yeah. Right. So I guess my very long winded answer there is I know a lot of what I want, but there's a lot that I'm not aware of that is probably acting under the surface in things. And those tones, because what I think people will find, because you can reverse engineer, Mm. I didn't know what I wanted, even though it was so obvious, (laughs) you know, it's like, hello, but you can reverse engineer it. You know, I've had this conversation sort of with friends on walks where they're like, I don't really know what I want to do. And I'm like, well, see who's driving you crazy. This is not to say like Marjorie Taylor Greene is driving you crazy because she's doing harmful behavior. That's different. We're not talking about that kind of canceling. You can identify, if you can identify the problematic behavior, it's not envy, but it's this, when you have sort of that, like this person, the very essence irritates me. Something is, there's information there but you can reverse engineer it. You know, who's sort of like, who's, who's irking you because maybe you feel like they're in your lane somehow and then move towards that and, and just get curious. Because I think what happens is we're so ashamed of these bad feelings. We don't let them come up. We don't diagnose them. We don't allow them. That's the other great revelation for me was just sitting with the discomfort and being like, what's happening in my body? Why is this person like, why am I agitated? Why am I irritated? What's happening? Let's just like be present doing that self-inquiry for a minute, two minutes. And then you're like, oh, okay. Rather know it feels worse in this quest for goodness, deprecating someone else. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) right then you're just stuck in it like that is that's the seventh level of hell right there yeah yeah exactly bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to on Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking with Elise Lunen, author of the New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior. Let's get back to it. I love the permission giving in there to be curious about the emotions and the sensations and the thoughts that are arising, right? Like yeah. that's good medicine in there because it's not like notice this stuff and then heap some judgment on yourself for coveting what somebody else has, right? Like, no, like it's not, we're not talking about judgment for being covetous. We're talking about information has arrived and can you be curious? Information has arrived. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always cultural context. What I loved about writing this book is that the, the sins, like they also crash into each other. So mm. envy is very closely related to, to greed and this idea of scarcity that is so dominant in women's lives, particularly around opportunity, this sort of tokenism, tokenism that because this person has it, it means I can't, yes. there's only ever one woman, yes. right? So in order to have it, I have to destroy her, dethrone her rather than saying, oh, okay, she has it. Therefore I can have it too. M move over men. Like we're going to take over more space. That is a conversation. really fascinating detail that I had not 
thought of. I've been thinking a lot about that competition for resources, right? Like if they mm-hmm. have success, it means less for me. It's like that, like it's like pie, right? Like if you have it, I don't get any. But I hadn't thought of it like there is only ever allowed to be one successful woman in the room because all of mm-hmm. the other spots are taken by men. Fascinating mm-hmm. layer to that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's very, it's very in our conscience, mm. the, the consciousness that there's really like there's some box to check. Yeah. There's a quota. Yeah. And and it's real. I'm not saying that it's not a real event in particularly in business. However, instead of saying, okay, then I'll let's just maintain that quota and I'll replace her with and myself right. and guard against other women. It is a function of questioning that foundational idea and saying, no, she's staying and I'm joining. Mm. And and the requirement for women, because I think so often we're like, we perceive men as the ones to whom we, as the other, and then, but really we're like sort of doing this infighting while maintaining the status quo and sort of giving face to this idea that we're supporting other women, but like the evidence isn't quite there, but we really need to do that because we are not only half the population, if not more, Mm. I I don't know the latest demographic stats, but many of us are primary breadwinners. There's just no other real accounting for the discrepancy other than like, let's get behind each other. Mm. I think that's our greatest hope. Yeah. Let's get behind each other. I love that. It's a little bit of a sidebar here, but I think that this is something that I've been seeing happen in different social justice or activist communities in issues, right? Like, how dare you care about this over here while the forests are burning? How dare you care about right. this while this is happening? And when I when I watch that unfolding in the world and when I watch for that impulse in myself, it's like, we need all of these things. Like we we don't need to be infighting against each other. Like can we look at each other and say, you're holding down the fort on gun yes. violence. I am working over here on trans justice and we need all of us and we are all united against the, the common enemy of violence, apathy, and ignorance. And instead we're fighting over the scraps that are left over from those yes. who are running the apathy and ignorance machine. And we fight over our perfection Mm. in all of these different spheres in a way that is so deeply unhelpful and watching the left and people who are like 90% aligned, 80% aligned, you know, it goes to Loretta Ross, who I love and her sort of calling in culture rather than calling out. And essentially she's like, I'll work with anyone who's at least like 10% aligned with me. There's certain people, you know, the people who stayed, who stormed the Capitol, she's like, they're never going to be my people. But like, there is so much common ground, but the way that we sort of persecute each other for imperfect speech or just not having it all right all the time makes it too terrifying, I think, for so many of us to participate and then gives excuses again, easy excuses for people to say, I'm out, opting out. Like, I don't want to engage. This isn't safe. So we have to like, I mean, this gets into the anger chapter, but there's like multiple calls here. One is internally, we each need to develop the ability to withstand criticism 
because what I, you know, the book is about how, how women are conditioned for these, this external idea of goodness, men are conditioned for power, but it gets to at this idea that the most harmful thing you can do to a woman is destroy her reputation. And we do this by calling her a bad person, unkind, toxic, a bad mother, whatever it may be. There are a million adjectives. Everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. That's enough to make a female founder, anyone just disappear. And meanwhile, a man can do anything. He can go to yeah, jail. Clearly. And if, yeah, exactly. And if he, we still perceive him as powerful, we will still revere him and take him seriously. But for so many women, there's no recovery from rep reputational damage. It's very, very not, I want to say odd. It's very sad, mm -hmm. but it's completely understandable. It's understandable and it's predictable. Yes. Yeah. But we have to be like, bring that to the front of our consciousness, both in terms of ignoring ourselves to um, those attacks to say, no, I'm not going away. Yes, I'm here to learn. I'm sure I'm not going to get it right. I'm going to be, I'm just going to stay and be present regardless of what you might say or think. So it requires a certain durability, particularly for, for white women like you and me, but it also requires grace, generosity. I, I mean, it's like, ah, uh, come on friends. And, and to go back to your original point, this, like the ability to run a relay, not a sprint. And that we all, we all have different gifts. We are all differently abled differently privileged, et cetera. We all, all have those sort of special spikes and that's what needs to come out of each of us. And you're different than I am. And that's what we're here to do. Yeah. So yes, like I'm going to go and work on this. You work on this. It is in, as you know, more than I do, it's like the collective grief and overwhelm of today's moment beyond what's happening in our personal lives. We can't divide and conquer. Yeah. We're screwed. There's no way of taking all of this on ourselves. Right. It has to be a collaborative movement, which means looking at all of the ways that we have internalized and learned competition and to fear yeah. judgment. So I, I want to bring this back down into the more intimate sphere here. We know that I'm a big fan of all of these these concepts and these practices in the the world of making the the world a better place for everybody. But I think that sometimes we can lose the intimacy of this, that we're not just talking about, you're not just talking about, I'm not just talking about these bigger issues. The seven deadlies, the things that women have learned about being good, these are things that impact our intimate daily lives. So there's, you mentioned it at the top here, there's a whole section towards the end of the book on grief and sadness. But mm -hmm. to my reading, there is grief and loss in every single chapter of this book. And, and here's the example that I want to pull out. I have it marked as coming from the, the pride chapter, but it might not be. So you correct me. But in one of those chapters, you wrote, I have to wonder how many times this has kept me from trying to make friends or more specifically to put myself in any sort of situation where I could be rejected by other women. Mm. This is the personal, intimate part of this giant collective issue that we were just talking about, that competition between women. This is something that actually affects us on a very deep, intimate level. 
Yeah. It's funny. I'm, I don't know what chapter that is, but it could be in any of the chapters, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> yeah, it could have, it could be because essentially every chapter in, in regard, depending on what the particular sin or vice is, is about extending ourselves into the world more fully and the wrist slapping that might invariably come as we're shamed for being too greedy, too gluttonous, too lustful, whatever it may be. Right. Too full of ourselves, too proud, too proud, too good. Too proud to put ourselves out there and how isolating that is. And we were talking, you know, before the show, but about our, the weird synchronicities of what you studied and the setup for the book. And I I wrote this chapter, which we debated keeping. I'm so glad that we kept it. It's the most academic, but it's really not that hard. So everyone listening can most certainly get through it, but it's about the history of patriarchy because as mentioned, like I didn't, I had just sort of assumed it was this foregone conclusion and that it had always been this way. And, and so I learned a lot. I read deeply and, you know, go to the bibliography Mm -hmm. and notes if you want to deep dive alongside me about how this came to be. But I talk in that chapter, a fair amount sort of about how we went from this affiliative partnership style way of living, which most uh, anthropologists, archaeologists agree is more or less the standard, which makes so much sense. I know that there's a lot of talk about, oh, we were matriarchal. It's like, no, there's no evidence of a dominance, hierarchical, (laughs) oppression-based. It's funny to think about cultural system with women at the top. There were matrilineal cultures, et cetera, but but effectively it was affiliative and partnership style. And we were all doing everything together. We were just existing, surviving, thriving, aloe parenting. Women were hunting, men were hunting, men were foraging, women were foraging, people were gathering, planting, all sorts of creative forms of culture and society. And it really wasn't until it's a, a longer history lesson. We can leave it for the book. But as part of patriarchy and this idea of sort of God, the father and the the man of the house and organizing these nuclear households, which in its first formation included enslaved women and children and women of various social degrees and typically designated by whether they were sexually available to multiple men or only one. And by available, that's like a very generous word of essentially their level of enslavement. But women prior to that did life together. And then you see sort of increasing isolation and siloing of women away from other women organized under men. And so we've been really torn apart. And I, I write about the witch hunts, not at great length, but that's, you know, it's so interesting because we think about the Salem witch trials and they still haunt our imaginations here in America. And I think 30 people died. Not to say that they weren't terrible, but in Europe, the witch craze went on for centuries. 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 Mm-hmm. And we don't know, we'll never quite know the exact number of people, but it's about 100,000, primarily women who were hunted, tortured, killed. It was a gender side. It is crazy to think about when you think about the intergenerational trauma of being suspicious for your sex, turning on your friends, turning on your mother, turning on your daughter to save yourself. 
So obviously here in America, we understand, or we're some of us understand <laughs> the intergenerational trauma of racism, of colonialism, of genocide on first peoples. And it still is in our land. It's in our shadow. It's in the energetic patterns of our lives. We get that. But this is big too. Yeah. I mean, we we were chatting about it just a tiny bit before we got rolling, but that was my entire undergrad and half of my grad school was looking at the European witch trials and the pitting of women against other women and the weaponizing of women's relationships. And, and that, like, read Elise's book, everybody, and check out the bibliography because it is fascinating and horrifying. But I think our point here is that this competition between women, this desire to be good, to not have any pride, to not be lazy, to not want things, to not have desires, to not think too highly of yourself so that you don't get bigger than your britches or whatever, like that is all manufactured is our point yes. here, that that is not an intrinsic trait that belongs to women or belongs to any gender. It is something that was manufactured a long time ago. Yes. And I, I think the work here um, what's so powerful about your book is that you you turn on the rest of the lights in the room and you say, mm -hmm. these things that you may not recognize you've absorbed have impacted your life in so many ways, your current life, your friendships, your relationships, what you think is possible in your world, what you think is possible for the future. Like so much of that has been guided by something that has become invisible but is very powerful and can you yes. can you start to look for that and look for the ways that these largely unspoken rules have kept you in a life that doesn't serve you mm. or that keeps you from what you most long for so we go go back to that quote that I pulled of yours, like, I wonder how many times this has kept me from trying to make friends or kept me from being in any sort of situation where I might be rejected, right? Like, we've got an epidemic of loneliness in this culture. Could this be part of that? We long so strongly for connection and to be seen. And we are terrified of being seen because most of what we think we'll get, especially from the women around us, is judgment and rejection and will be ostracized, which means we'll be alone. Yeah. That spells death, social death. Yeah. You know, I write the beginning about the work of Ashley Montague, mm. who was this visionary anthropologist. And he said, you know, we should really call our ancestors gatherer hunters not hunter-gatherers. He wrote this book in the 50s called The Natural Superiority of Women because, you know, he was like, it bears out. Like you look at the durability of women, the IQ tests of girls. I mean, we've been outperforming boys and men in school for a century. So I love men. I have two little boys, not to upset everyone, I, but I do think men are more, in so many ways, more injured by the patriarchy than women. They're definitely its victims too. But he writes about, Ashley Montague writes about this idea of first nature and second nature. And first nature is who we are sort of instinctively and naturally, I guess. It's hard to find language to describe this idea of first nature. It's just who we are. And then second nature is, is culture. It's who the stories we tell about who we are. This happens to men as well. 
but the real crime against women is the ways in which we're told that our first nature is really our second nature and that a woman is more caring, more kind, more nurturing, et cetera. I'm not saying that these aren't all qualities that women possess, but we can be many other things too. And men can be very caring, nurturing, creative, loving. You know, I write a fair amount uh, in the book about the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And I think that we're at the point where we're ready to really understand what that means and that we each contain masculine and feminine energy, ideally in balanced quotients. But I tend to be more in my masculine than in my feminine. You do too. Okay. So, I mean, not to go in totally a million different directions, but this is what the, in some ways, what the contemporary trans movement is calling us to. Yeah. Is actually, there's another more powerful element at play, which is not attached to gender. Yeah. Divine masculine is not a quality of men and divine feminine is not a quality of women. It is not gendered, ironically. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later... The co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, before we get back to my conversation with Elise, you know I'm going to tell you about something special. I assume that a lot of you know about my book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. The full title of that book is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And it's that last part that's relevant here. If you haven't read the book or you read it, but you skipped over that first section where I get into the deep historical roots of grief avoidance, this is your encouragement to go read that section. Elise and I have been talking about the ideas we've inherited as a culture and how they influence us in powerful and often unrealized ways. The cultural programming that we've inherited around grief is especially complicated. So pick up It's Okay That You're Not Okay wherever you get your books or check the links in the show notes to get your copy and dive into that. Turn on those lights around what makes grief so scary for us. It's right there in the book. All right, back to another fascinating conversation about the hidden reasons behind human behavior with Elise Lunen. You know what this reminds me of is um, Gina Rosero was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I love Gina. She's so good. I love her so much. And she said, you know, I'm not going to speak for the whole trans community, but we would love to stop talking about gender. Yeah. Right? Because this isn't it, right? Like the whole reason no, we have to talk about gender is because gender is an issue. Because the, yeah. our ideas around what is allowed and what is not allowed are like so heavily gendered. But like we're out here trying to just like be life and well, gender is us. like the least it's the least interesting thing about any of us. Ah. It's like yeah. your bits. Like it's not interesting. It's not actually. It's not at all. No, but we're making <laughs> it that way. So it's it's interesting. Like we, you know, we're doing this sort of contract expand back and forth here in our conversation from like the personal and the intimate and out to the cultural and back. There's something for me in when you start to look at this stuff, when you start to go, oh, there has there have been some invisible forces that have made me make certain choices in my life that now looking back, I wish I had known this sooner. I know that you've said that you you learned a lot in the process of researching this book and writing this book. Was there grief involved for you at any point in like recognizing the way that those internalized structures, I don't want to say prevented things, but like that, again, going back to that line of yours that I pulled, like there are mm -hmm. so many relationships that I kept myself from. And now that I know what I know, one, I wish I had known it earlier, and two, how do I not do this moving forward? So is there a grief for you at all in those lights getting turned on? Yeah. I mean, the whole book, I mean, in some ways it was really fun to write, but it was a very heavy and hard experience. And you know, you participated in these types of projects. I mean, it was therapy around each of these ideas and the ways in which I could tell I had limited my own life or judged other people or, you know, potentially perpetuated harm culturally by abiding, you know, I think about that in the context of gluttony, for example, certainly. And yes, I mean, 
a lot of grief, some more heavy than others, you know, sloth, which is the first chapter in the book is just so accessible. And so easy for me, that was more, more rage contending with my anger, but anger speaking of very much was about accessing grief. And, you know, I write about a year as a therapist, you know, that anger is often secondary to grief, shame, fear. So I definitely, definitely in the process of even acknowledging that I had anger, which was a big step for me, opening that door and saying, yeah, I'm pissed. I think so many of us think we can higher mind our anger or we're calm. You know, we would never, we would, you know, we've got it. We're under control here. Yeah. A a tremendous amount of grief, not to mention that I write about grief, although in a more direct way, but I would say too, that grief is what brought me to even write this book. And similar to, to you, my husband's brother, I mean, not my husband, my brother's husband died in his sleep when he was 39 of a rare undiagnosed heart condition. Although it's in a way a blessing that he was never diagnosed because it's not a disease with any treatment or cure. It would not have been, he, he, in some ways had a beautiful death, even though it was so tragic, but Peter dying in 2017, just completely changed my life in that way that the real bottoming out can Peter, he was my brother's husband. They met their first week of college. I, I met him when I was 15 years old. In many ways, he he functioned more as my brother than my brother. <laughs> He's the one who would, you know, drive me to the airport and call me every day. And he's also one of those people who had 20 people who thought they were his best friend. <laughs> Speaking of competition, <laughs> funeral competition, who gets to be, Ooh. who really deserves to grieve? Who gets to be the most sad? But anyway, his death really put me in touch with the universe. It just, it just recontextualized everything for me, including, oh my God, what do I want? Mm -hmm. Like, this is short. Yes, this is, this is short. And certainly no day can be taken for granted. And your life changes can change immediately for the better or for the worse. So his death gave me access to a much deeper part of myself. And it sucks, right? Mm-hmm. Life, like you just can't, you can't, don't really live until, until the hard things start happening. And I mean, that's not entirely fair, but that is sometimes accurate, but not required. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> but it just, it just adds a different texture to your life. Sure. Right. And for me, at least it was very recontextualizing. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the the grief was present. It's still present because oh, of course. I also refused to, you know, and, and no way do I want to say to women, like, buy my book and you will be free. And um, I've done it. You've done it. You're you just read this Ta-da! and you're good. It's, it's all you need. <laughs> but there's there's something in there, right? Of like when you start messing around with what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to be in relationship with yourself and with others, what does it mean to wake up to your life because whatever happens right what does it mean to wake up to your life and go wait a second this is not this is all over so fast 
this yeah. is not the way I want to spend this time, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of starts going against all of those like prescriptive, do these five steps and be free, all of this stuff. And so it's this, it's this interesting middle ground of how do we as authors, as teachers, as creators, create the space, the structure for mm -hmm. people to ask questions of themselves and then go in search of their own responses, maybe not answers, right? Like, how do we do yeah. both things? How do we, how do we share what we know in such a way that lets other people use our path to question their own path, but not provide answers for that? Yes. It's funny. At first, I sort of pitched this book as a more academic, more abstract clinical <laughs> read, you know, and then my editor with a little bit of memoir and it's still, it's not like memoir dominated by any sense, but my editor was like, not so fast. Like you have to be present. You yeah. need to walk everyone through this and bring yourself closer to all of these sins and guide us through this material. And it doesn't mean that people, and there's something to that you know, not only it's like vulnerable is such a overused word, but modeling in some ways, like I'm going to go first, I'm yes. going to walk this. I walked it and like, you can follow my path or do your own, but here's my experience of going through this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm grinning because I've heard this so many times this season where people are like, I had this great TED talk. I had this great book proposal. I had this great, like these amazing things. And then the editor or the, the talk coordinator goes, you know, you have to put yourself in there, right? Like yeah. you can't cut yourself out of this equation. So I, I love that from, from that perspective of people being like, hello, do not exclude yourself yeah. from humanity, put yourself in there. But also there's something, and I mentioned it sort of earlier today as we were talking, that all of these ideas, all of these concepts, they can feel out there. They can feel mm -hmm. out of reach or not mine or just nothing it's it's like you know how we say like we need a personal face of god because otherwise it's just undifferentiated chaos and i can't relate to that right like there has to be <laughs> there has to be a face to it so like when you put here's how pride shows up in my life and the choices that i've made before i realized this was something bigger or more powerful or something that i needed right something human and healthy right like there is a way of bringing this large conceptual thing down to the personal scale when you say, here's how it showed up for me. It's like we give people mm -hmm. a blueprint is, is a little bit more than I, a little bit more of a guide than I'm thinking here, but like there is a structure. Here's how I use this structure and went looking in my own life for the footprints of yeah. these seven deadlies. You can adapt this footprint to look at your own life and where has it shown up. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, the the personal is the political is the collective, right? That this thing going back to like judgment of other women and who does she think she is and that competition and all of this, like, I don't know anyone who hasn't felt that, 
right? The yeah. particular flavor of that might be different in an individual life, but the the gesture of it is probably there somewhere. And if it isn't, wow, what happened that made that different for you? And can we celebrate yeah. that? Like I love this, I love this idea also of like this is such a tangent. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who does not have the greatest relationship with their mother. And they're like, I don't get the people who are like, my mother is my best friend. And I really learned how to show up as my true self from my childhood, like all of this stuff. So like, maybe you don't have that impulsive judgment of other women. You don't feel like anybody is your competition or that you're fighting for a scarce resource. I love that for you. And what was different? What was the care and feeding that you got that allowed you, right? (laughs) Who is this and how can we love on them? Because there's something in there too. There's something in in the, um, I dodged that particular messaging. And here's, there's something important. Although, Yeah. yeah. It's funny listening to that. Yes. And I think about my editor, Mm -hmm. Wit, who in terms of the envy chapter, I intended it to go first. I sent it to her and she just freaked. And, you know, she was like, I don't agree with this. This isn't me. I, you know, uh," like just a freak out. And I said, okay, just like, I'll move it to the last chapter. And I'm going to spend the rest of the book convincing you that this is that true. this is you. Yeah. And then maybe a few months later, she was like, okay, she just I had identified yes. enough instances where she interrupted her own thought pattern to recognize it and was like, okay. Yeah, that's a really good nuance. Anytime you're like, oh, that's not me at all. That has nothing to do with me. Like anytime you have an emotionally charged response yeah. to saying that is not mine, oh, babe, that is yours. I'm talking- <laughs> I'm AA saying, exactly. you spot it, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about um, Malkia Devitt-Sterl, who was on the show earlier and them talking about the community in which they were raised, right? Mm. Which is not to say, I'm certainly not gonna take their inventory for them, but not to say that they don't have that impulse to compete or whatever, but that there was something medicinal. It's like that seed culture. What is the seed culture that helped you not be in that quite as much? as somebody else might be. I just think there's, I think that there's like, if we want to start dissolving those internalized metrics for goodness and performance, are there things that we can do and things that we can practice that will help us do that? Because I think if we don't start also talking about the structures, how you might ask these questions, how you might work through these things or look at these things with kindness in yourself. If we don't give some of those tools, we're sort of like, here's this shitty thing that happens. You figure it out on your own, which is just putting us back into that self-sufficient, I cannot rest until I get this. I'm Mm -hmm. not a good person. I somehow failed somewhere because I'm a product of an inherited culture. I have to do everything in my power to get around it. Do you know what I mean? Like we can start can read a book like this and you can see it as all of the ways that you've failed or you can mm. read a book like this and see it as all of the inheritances that have failed you mm, beautiful but I, I think this is a really important point here is there there is so much at stake 
personally, interpersonally, communally, culturally, globally. There's so much at stake that I think we need to be able to look at the places that the system has let us down, that we've let each other down, that we've let ourselves down, and also talk about what is the medicine that is called for? Mm -hmm. What do we do now? Because otherwise, we're just like, we got a heap of problems. We have no idea what to do about it, right? Yeah. I love that one of the things that your book has done is it has started conversations about this. And to me, that's the medicine. How do we have conversations about what we've learned and what we've inherited and how that's held us back? And that connecting in that stuff instead of waiting to perfect it in ourselves before we talk about it. Like, I feel like connecting in these conversations, curiosity for ourselves, generosity to other people. Um, Did you read Elise's book? How did that chapter on envy, does that show up for you? You know, there are so many amazing books and siloed conversations about women and food, women and money, women and anger, et cetera. And I wanted to show how they're all related, bring them all into a house, connect them all to a system and create a framework in which we could identify this in ourselves and then talk about it together. And yes, like, please read my book and support my book. I would love that. But the idea, the thing that makes me most excited is that you could go to a book club for On Our Best Behavior and you don't necessarily need to have finished the book or even read much of it to be able to talk about each of these ideas fully. And that that's the sort of viral effect I wanted to create because, you know, writing this book was a very lonely experience and I was with myself processing, but then to watch it go into the world and then see how see women talk about it together and or talk to me about it has been as you to use your word medicinal and healing because you can't interrupt the status quo you can't program against culture in a silo this is communal community work this is bringing women back together to talk about these things and that's how we break them that's how we interrupt them and say, not today, Ken. <laughs> it's very Barbie movie, though. When I saw the movie, I was like, oh, my God, this is a much more colorful version of On Our Best Behavior. <laughs> but you start to recognize the, the cognitive yes, dissonance. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you start to recognize it. We don't have a lot of time to get into it. So this is more of a of a encouragement for people to get the book. It's like the, the last chapter of the book this is something that I learned, that the seven deadly sins were once the eight thoughts as you started, opened with here together, and that those eight thoughts included sadness, but sadness was excommunicated from the list. And you wrote, of all the sins, sadness feels like it should be most important. It should be the crown. And to me, of course, like my my entire view of the world is that, that grief is the turning point of the world and that yes. the inability to explore, identify, name as healthy and a normal part of human being, being a human being, like that the repression of grief is why we have all of the problems that we have. Much bigger topic. Y'all have heard me talk about quite a bit, but I loved this coming in at the end of this book, coming in at this exploration of all of the seven deadly sins to say, you know, actually the, the crowning jewel of this is sadness. Yes. I... I'm so glad that that chapter is in there because mm-hmm. we talked about it. But I do, like you, think that grief 
is how we start cleansing some of this cultural patterning and and the destruction that we've wreaked on the world and on each other. And we spend a lot of energy keeping our thumb on that grief. And I write about it. Obviously, sadness is not the dominion of women or men, but I also write about that chapter because I had this lingering question and this question that I thought people would wonder, like, and what about men? And this book isn't directed towards men, certainly, although I hope men read it because I think it provide would provide a lot of insight into the psychology of women and sort of the, that internal programming that we're pushing against. But I think that the suppression of grief, this refusal to feel our feelings, the denial of sadness, which shows up most acutely for boys and men, certainly it's a cultural, it's a cultural malady, but it is, we sever boys from their feelings or historically have, I think we're getting better, but I think the primary symptom of that is toxic masculinity. And again, women can behave in toxically masculine ways, but this dominance, suppressive, like control to me, that's an antidote or perceived as an antidote to all this grief, all this feeling, all this, Mm -hmm. these chaos states. Yep. Shut them down. Shut them down. Yeah. And we can't move forward without reconciling with our grief. Mm-hmm. There's a line here that I is both enraging and I super love. You wrote that sadness was seen as the sin that is most destructive to men because it is perceived as womanly, womanly, which means weak. That line just sort of summarizes what you said is like we mm-hmm. work really hard to make men and boys not appear like women. We don't want them to have feelings. We don't want them to cry. We don't want them to be quote unquote soft. It's one of the reasons that we attack gay men and attack Mm -hmm. trans men is because they're acting like women. And we hate women so much Mm -hmm. that anything that leans in that direction needs to be exterminated. And I love Mm -hmm. that what you say here is that gag order on sadness that we enforce across the board, but really, really does show up for men and boys, like the amount of energy that it takes to suppress a normal response of sadness or grief or human empathy or feeling like the amount of force it takes to hold that down, it can only explode elsewhere. Yes. It yeah. it really is in the allowing of sadness that we get the beautiful world we say we want. And, you know, to quote therapist Terry Real, who writes and and so beautifully about men, we don't talk about turning girls into women, but we talk about turning boys into men. Mm. And again, to go to Ashley Montague, it's a cultural idea of what a man is. It has nothing to do with a, a natural state. It is just our cultural idea of a man who is stoic strong and completely disconnected from himself oh we have so much more to say about this but i also we'll do another one we'll do another (laughs) one well like we'll do a whole salon series okay anyway (laughs) i do want to ask you the question that i ask everybody so much has changed for you over the last several years we didn't even get into the wellness movement and 
the grief involved in leaving that. Like we didn't even touch that. I'm gonna I'll put it in the show notes, and you you do talk about it um, in other places. But so much has changed for you over the last several years. So knowing what you know, living what you've lived up to this point, and living what you're living with this new book out in the world. What does hope look like for you? Does it does hope show up in this world for you at all? Oh yes, I am essentially an optimistic and hopeful person. And the book may be about these external ideas of goodness in a way that might seem like I'm deprecating the idea of goodness. I'm not at all. I think people are inherently good. I really believe that it's an, it's baked into who we are. I think that we can stray from that. I think that there are some people who are full of shadow, but I do believe that when we can calm people's fear, when we can relieve scarcity, that when we can put people in contact with each other, that ultimately people are good. And it's a really scary and weird time to be alive, certainly, but I am hopeful. I am optimistic. And I'm primarily hopeful because I think that women are... (laughs) It's wild, actually, when we when I think about how powerful women are, this isn't a new thing either. It's like we are so impressive, so incredible and intelligent, hardworking, yes, nurturing often. And so when I think about the potential of women getting on side with each other, of starting to allow that they are, that we're all good and bad. You know, we're human. We contain multitudes. We contain multitudes. We're full of shadow. There are certainly going to be moments that we regret in every single day. This isn't about perfection. That if we can get on side with each other, we are boxers who have been training at high altitude. And I just think that the world could rapidly start to change and evolve. I really do. Put us in, not into the Elon Mark Zuckerberg cage fight. No, thank thank you. you. (laughs) But put us in. I love that image of we are boxers that have been training at altitude and just how strong we are. Watch out. Watch out. All right. So obviously we are going to link to the book in the show notes and to your website. Is there anything else you want people to know? about you or the book? Pulling the thread. Oh, pulling the thread. Okay. Lay it on us. Yeah. What's pulling the thread about? Pulling the thread, 45-minute conversations with cultural luminaries. You will have to come on about big questions of the day. And, you know, similar to you, I'm interested in just understanding the world. Mm. Okay. So we will link to that in show notes too. Thank you so much for being here. Everybody stay tuned. I will be back with your questions to carry with you after this break, and I promise I will not load you with all of the questions that came up for me. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. Okay, before the break, I promised that I would not bombard you with every single one of the questions and the ideas that came to me during this conversation with Elise. There were a lot of questions and ideas that came to me. The show that you listen to is like just under an hour, but Elise and I talked together for almost two hours. So I got a lot of thoughts in my head is basically what I'm trying to tell you. For our purposes, I'm going to stick with one thing. These conversations can feel really theoretical, really out there, away from the life that you're actually living. I love that Elise had to be pushed a little bit in the writing process to bring herself into her own book. And she gave us a way to ask ourselves things like, how does envy show up in my life? How does the fear of being seen as lazy keep me from letting myself rest? These are such powerful questions and they can lead to real transformation in how we live our daily lives. I also love that she gives us a way to 
question the cultural narratives, right? To like turn on the light and look at that cultural messaging, especially the messaging that says that having desire is a bad thing. You deserve love, connection, success, rest, all of these desires that we have actually been conditioned to silence. I love that Elisa's work gives us the space to question those things that we've inherited and to start asking ourselves how the silencing of our own human desires has kept us from getting the things that we deserve and then gives us a space to wonder about what to do differently with the information that we learn. This stuff isn't just theoretical. I can get lost in that sometimes. Like my, my brain goes into all of the patterns and all the systems and all the ways that things interrelate. But at the end of the day, we do these things so that we can take them into ourselves and ask ourselves better questions about who we are and what we want. Yeah? What stuck with you in this conversation? Everybody's going to take something different from today's show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. I would love to hear what's coming up for you, what you found, the questions you might ask yourself, the questions you might ask of the people in your communities and the people you care about. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, let me know. Leaving a review of this episode on your favorite podcast app is a good way to let me know and let others know the ways that this show is making you think or feel or relate. You can also tag at Refuge and Grief on all of the social platforms so that I can hear how this conversation affected you. Follow the show at It's Okay Pod on TikTok and Refuge and Grief everywhere else to see video clips from the show. And use the hashtag It's Okay Pod on all the platforms to keep the conversations going. None of us are entirely okay. And it's time we start talking about that together. It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That is it for this week. Friends, remember to subscribe to the show, leave a review, get your own conversation started by sharing this episode with your community. This one especially is really a good conversation starter. Follow the show on your favorite platforms so you do not miss an episode. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, with logistical and social media support from Micah. Post-production and editing by Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and today's background noise provided by the dog, very quietly snoring at my feet. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.